listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. One of our sponsors of the Dairy Voice podcast is National DHIA. NDHIA ensures information accuracy and represents their members' interests. They are the direct voice for the dairy information industry. To find out more, go to dhia.org. We're very pleased today to have with us Brian Barless, whose Barless jerseys are near Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, the name Barless is almost synonymous with the Jersey breed, uh, not only in the U.S., but probably internationally as well. So we're very pleased to have Brian with us today. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Joel. Why don't we start by having you just tell us a little bit about the Barless legacy in the Jersey breed, if you would. I know you're, uh, you've got several generations and family involved. Just, just give us a little background. Well, I'm the sixth generation of my family to farm on the Rock Prairie, just east of Jadenville. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather, Andrew, immigrated here from Scotland in 1842. Um, we're not on the original homestead. We're just across the field from it. Um, the original homestead is still owned by actually my sister and brother-in-law right now, though. We've had jerseys in the family since 1927 when my great-grandpa Elf and his brother Stu uh, bought a herd, imported them from Jersey Island. Um, at the time they were bottling milk and there was a demand for high fat milk. Um, so they, they brought in herd jerseys to, uh, to meet that demand with their bottling route. Um, that was that original herd then was, was the Gilbar herd. Um, in 1969, my grandpa Marvin and his brother, George, split up the herds and uh, we moved to our current location. Um, and then uh, the Gilbar herd is, is still at the, at that site, uh, which is just quarter of a mile down, down the road from the original homestead. And that was your uncle George and, uh, and his sons, your cousins uh, at Gilbar. Yep. Or my, my great uncle George and his son, Gordian and his, his sons. And when you came back from college, which we'll talk about in a minute, but uh, your mom and dad were actively running the farm. Just just bring us up to date on who's involved currently. Yeah. Um, so currently we we farm as an LLC. Um, my parents and I are each uh, a third owner in that. Um, the LLC owns the cows machinery and a little bit of the land, but most of the land is held outside of that by by us either individually or or grouped together um and your folks are well known too bill and marion barless both active in the dairy industry and in the jersey breed yep both dad and mom have served on the the national jersey or national all jersey board of directors uh my dad has been on the world dairy expo uh, board of directors and executive committee for quite a few years and on mom's side of the family um their their families had jerseys for couple generations back now. My cousins are now the uh, third or fourth generation there with a dairy in northwestern Wisconsin, and they're milking about 700 or 750 jerseys too. And just tell us a little about a little bit about your own family. My wife and I have been married for 11 years, and we've got two sons, uh, Jack and Henry, and um, they are nine and five, and both think they're interested in the farm. Both uh, tell everybody they want to be farmers, but We'll see. Time will tell. And then uh, my sister, Kristen, is the director of field services for the Jersey Association. 
she lives right around the corner from us and she and her husband, Brian have a daughter and a son who are uh, essentially the same age as our kids. They're over here and we keep cattle at their place too. And so their, their kids are very active in the operation and um, Kristen does all of our genetic work for the herd. And then your brother, Brett came West. He's here in California managing a, a Jersey herd. And uh, uh, I happy to say that uh, we talked with Brett on this podcast uh, earlier this year, and now we're speaking with you happily, and uh, it's our first brother combination on Dairy Voice. No, that's great. Yep. Uh, yeah, Brett and I often uh, bounce ideas back and forth on things, and um, he's still got some cows in the herd here, too. So. Well, it's a great family story. Your friends around the country uh, and fellow breeders uh, really appreciate the the barless contribution to the dairy industry and to the Jersey breed. But but let's circle back. You're uh, obviously Wisconsin born and bred, but you didn't go to school in Wisconsin. You, you went to Cornell. Uh, start yep. your story there and then how you came back home. Well, I was, I was up in the air between Cornell and Madison, um, had also looked at Cal Poly and Ohio State a little bit and, and uh, well, UW-River Falls and Platteville for that matter too. Um, when I went out to visit Cornell, my advisor, Dave Galton, took me to two farms that Cornell grads are running, and um, I was just kind of blown away by those. That I, I just decided that was what I wanted to do. Um, when I was looking at Madison, I was looking into a dual major with dairy science and ag engineering. And after visiting those farms, I kind of realized that uh, the reason I wanted to do ag engineering was uh, as a way of incorporating some new ideas into the farm. And uh, I just, I saw that visiting some Cornell graduate run dairies out there. And there was a lot more opportunities for flexibility with the program. I was able to take a, a leave of absence for a year from Cornell and I came to Madison for a semester and took classes at, at UW. And then I spent um, another semester working on dairies in New Zealand. And we had the opportunity to go on dairy club trips to both Italy and England. And um, twice to uh, Las Vegas to the large herd dairy conference out there. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a great experience for me. I uh, still keep in touch with quite a few friends, not as often as I would like to. And um, I've been a part of a discussion group that Jason Carsey's at Cornell um, has put together. So I, I really enjoy uh, getting out there for those meetings. And at the time you were in school, uh, the home farm uh, was what we'll call a traditional stall barn, stanchion barn, or tie stalls. And you had some thoughts about uh, doing some things differently. Just tell us about how you planned at Wisconsin, at, excuse me, at Cornell, and then how things have gone since you've come home. Yeah, we were milking about 80 cows in a 60 stall, half tie stall, half stanchion barn. And um Looking at the amount of hours that my parents were putting in um, milking cows, I, I, and a, after visiting a couple of those dairies in New York, I realized there's there's some easier ways to do these things. Um, so that was what really prompted that that look into the expansion. Um, I used the Cornell Dairy Farm business summary as the sort of my basis for for all the financial numbers, and um, used that to put together the business plan for for the expansion. We put a parlor in the old tie stall barn, um, built a new freestall barn, retrofitted freestalls into an existing loafing shed, which in hindsight would not do again. 
and uh, went from over the next about two years up to about 350 cows and then gradually grew up to about, well, we, we did one time we milked 500, but that was, it was a little too much for our facilities. Um, we're, we're sitting at 420 right now and, um, about 450 is a, is a ideal number for us, I think. As dairy owners and farmers, we know that we spend a large part of the day on our feet. Our boots are like a tool of the trade and they need to be the best. Dry Shod Waterproof Footwear is your tool to provide hardworking, durable, super comfortable, 100% waterproof footwear that will keep your feet warm, dry, and protected in the harshest weather and messiest working conditions. Dry Shod was created in 2018 by Jim Donahue. Jim was the former Muck Boot Company creator, founder, and owner. Dry Shod is his 2.0 version, incorporating better outsoles, more comfort, and a product that goes beyond waterproof. Every model has a shank for extra arch support and a hydrocoat water repellent upper that repels water and mud on contact. Try a pair of Dry Shods today. Dry Shod is the world's most wearable rubber boot. Go to dryshodusa.com for more information. And we want us to lead you through uh, your setup today, but before we do that, I just want to comment that uh, knowing your folks, it was fun to hear their enthusiasm for your plans and for them working with you to uh, make that happen. I'm sure it had its moments, but from a parental point of view, I appreciate their enthusiasm for working with you to, to make some changes. Yeah, they were they were very supportive of it. Um... I mean, basically, I put together the business plan, did all the expansion plans. Um, obviously, the numbers had to work. I, I not only had to convince them of it, of it I had to convince the bankers. Um, and we met with five different banks and gave the proposal to them. And um, every one of them came back to us with, with an offer. So, uh, you know, I felt like we we did our due diligence on the financial planning anyway to, to not have any of them turn us down on it. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a big leap of faith for my parents. It was mom had grown up milking in a parlor, but um there was there was a lot of uh a lot of expenses that, that went into that expansion. And and what year was that when you came home and, and the plan got underway? That was in two thousand. I, I came home from college in uh the fall of or spring of ninety nine. Well, let's uh let's take a look at your setup today. Kind of give us a, a an audio farm tour of, of uh, what your facilities are today and how you're working with yeah. the herd. Well, we remodeled since remodeled the original parlor. It was a, a double 10 parabone. We went to a swing 16 parallel with rapid exit vertical lift stalls. Not a whole lot of swing parlors out there, but I really liked the swing parlors I milked in when I was in New Zealand. Um, it just kind of forced a, a more natural flow through, I think. Um, and at the time when we were looking at remodeling, I was, uh, we really wanted meters and ID and, um, it was a lower cost to put in 16 meters down the middle than, than 24 12 on each side, which is the other, the other alternative we were looking into. So we went with a, the swing 16 dairy master system. And then we've got, uh, all the cows are in sand bedded free stalls, concrete lined manure pit, was originally designed for a year's storage. It it's more like a six month really by the time with the amount of rainwater we've been getting, with the exception of this year. Um, 
blacktop pad for silage piles. Uh, we do still use one harvester for high moisture corn. Um, we filled a, an old state silo this year for the first time in probably close to 10 years. Uh, we had some sweet corn for a canning company that got bypassed, so we harvested that and put it in there. Dry cows are housed off-site. Uh, we bought a neighboring dairy, and uh, that was all loose housing, so we converted that to a compost pack, and dry cows are there. We just this year started sending calves out to be raised. Um, we're getting our first group back this week at six months old, um, so we're excited about that. But, and then from, from six, we will raise them ourselves from six months on up to freshening. And we farm about 1,200 acres. Uh, Roughly a third of that goes into feeding the cattle, and then we sell some cash corn and soybeans, and we grow some uh, vegetables for a local vegetable processor, too. And it's that beautiful southern Wisconsin topsoil that's uh, six or eight feet deep, I think. Yes, yes, we are blessed with that. We do have a little bit of rocks and, and a few hilly spots, but yeah, uh, a lot of the farm has got topsoil that deeper, deeper. Um, which is why in this dry year, like we've had this year, we're, we're still having quite a few neighbors who have finished with harvest who are, are still saying they average well over 200 bushels to the acre on, on their corn. And you've got enough land base that you can, uh, conventionally spread your, your manure. Uh, yeah. when, when you empty the, when you empty the pit. Yep. So tell us about the herd performance these days. What, what, uh, how are you doing? How are the cows doing? We're averaging about 57 to 58 right now. It's not where I'd like to be. Um, we had to go off BST about five years ago, and we've just struggled to get production back up to that that point. Um, we were at we did peak out at about at a 62 pound average while we were still on BST. And what kind of uh, solids do you get? Yeah, we're running about five four fat right now and three eight protein. Um, I expect as we move into winter, we'll get that protein a little closer to four, and the fat will probably get up to about five, six. Um, during the summer, we we tend to those tend to taper down to about three, five on the protein, three, five to three, six, and and about five is the lowest we ever get on fat. You, uh, I expect, work with a nutritionist uh, to help you uh, formulate the ration. Yep, we do. And and what's your ration consist of this fall here? Uh, so we feed blend of corn silages. We've got some conventional corn silage and some BMR, and then haylage, which is uh, a mixture of alfalfa and with a little bit of grass in it. Right now, we're not feeding any dry hay. Occasionally, we do feed a blend of high moisture corn and ground dry corn, and then um, some soybean meal, protein mix, some starch, some wet gluten. We're fortunate where we are. There, there's a lot of different uh, feed commodities available close by and uh, a lot of different feed mills that we can source those ingredients from. So you're guided by uh, kind of what's available and, and, and pricing too, I expect. Yeah. T- tell us about your cows. You've, you've had registered jerseys uh, for many, many years. Uh, tell us a little bit about what kind of cow you're after, what bulls you're using, what traits that you put a priority on. Uh, yeah. So we we breed for production. Um, we used to do a lot of showing and we really haven't done any of that for close to 15 years. Now that the next generation is, um, 
getting to be of age where they're they're starting to get some show animals. I'm I'm sure we'll do a little bit more of that again. But still, the primary breeding program is pr- production, but we also really emphasize functional type. Um, we want good feet and legs, good udders that will last. Um, we often have cows in the herd that are 10, 12 years, even up to 14 years old. Um, so we really value keeping older cows in the herd and just keeping them productive and keeping them going. Um, so my sister does all the matings. And uh, as far as the bulls, um, she would be the one to check with on that. I don't, I don't do any of the sire selection at all. Um, I just do what I'm told in that department. How about genomics? Um, how has genomics uh, been introduced in the herd, either on the female side or uh, I presume uh, we'll we'll check with Kristen, but I presume there are some genomic bulls that are used. Yeah, we do use a lot of genomic bulls, um, not exclusively though, and we do some genomic testing in our herd, but um, we're not testing everything. We're basically just looking at some of the elite animals um, to to get genomic test genomic results on those. As far as the rest of the herd, I I think we've got a pretty good handle on on the herd and their genetic base as is. That I don't know that we would benefit from genomics as far as selecting which animals to breed to sex semen or which ones to go to to just go to beef. Um, and we are using some beef crossing and then selling those as as newborn calves. Just the bull calves, or the, the beef heifers are going going as feeders too. Yes. Okay. I'm curious, uh, this is my own lack of background, what what breeds of, of bulls did you use on your uh, for the beef program? We've primarily been using Angus, a little bit of Sim Angus, and we've used um, a little bit of Charlet just because our, our technician had a really good uh, conception rate with one Charlet bull in particular. But the, the beef has been where the market is, or the, excuse me, the Angus has been where the, the market has been. They've, everybody wants a black hide so they can say it's Angus beef. As you uh, look ahead now, your, your uh, family is starting to get involved uh, for another generation's worth. Uh, what are some of the issues on your, on your farm that you're looking at dealing with, whether it's uh, expansion or remodeling facilities or what, what issues are you looking at? Yeah, that, that's actually a really good question. Um, we have looked into doing some some expansion and facility remodeling or upgrading just recently. I guess one one potential issue for us, we're not there yet, but if we hit that thousand animal unit mark for Wisconsin that puts us into a CAFO, um, that completely changes the regulations that we have to follow. And our facility is just not really designed to be a CAFO unit. We have too many places where there's surface water that runs between buildings. And um, so I think in order for us to jump across that or to, to become a CAFO, it, it's not going to be for another 50 or 100 cows. It's going to have to be a, a few hundred to justify the expense we're going to have to make just in uh, earth moving and um, wastewater, rainwater management. Um, but yes, it's, we're, we're definitely looking at, at future expansion and upgrading facilities. Um, just barns have changed a lot since, since the way we were building them when I got out of college. If we were redoing it now, it would be either a tunnel vent or cross-ventilated barn and probably be looking at robots. I, I don't see that in our near future, but um, you know, definitely something to consider. Uh, and speak- then the- Go ahead. 
the labor labor has been an issue. We had, we had always had a really good labor supply in the area. And in the last two years, the, the labor market has gotten really tight. We're a mile and a half from the city limits of Janesville, which is about 65,000 people. And literally every single business in town has a help wanted sign, either out in front of the road or stuck to their their front door of the business. And so it, it's tough finding enough people to get the work done. How many employees do you do you have in addition to your family workers? We've got six full-time and four part-time. So we're, we're blessed with the employees we have. Uh, They've they've been great. Most of them have been with us for quite a few years, um, with the exception of some high school kids and and some uh, young adults who are just out of high school who work part time for us. Um, but it it's just hard finding another one or two people. Uh, shifting back to technology, uh, we're seeing around the country, perhaps on larger scale farms, but uh, has has the manure digester issue. Uh, been something you've looked at yet, or are you going to wait to be a CAFO to, CAFO to do that? Um, I, we would. It's something we've looked into a little bit. Um, it's been several years since we've we've looked into that. But as the uh, the demand for green power increases, I I would think that those will start to become more economical for smaller size herds. Probably still isn't going to be in the in the works or for us until we're we would be at a CAFO unit. Um, we have looked into sand separation in the more immediate future and would probably go that well. We, we would definitely need to go that route before the, the digester anyway. Sure. Uh, as, a, as a purebred Jersey breeder and a long-established registered herd, cattle marketing has changed in these uh, days since genomics emerged. Uh, when you and I were scheduling this conversation, you were on your way back from Louisville where you'd had a couple of uh, animals in the sales. Do you sell breeding stock currently? And, and how, if you do, how has that market changed? So we really have not sold any breeding stock for several years. Um, this was actually really the first uh, genetic sale we've had of, of any kind in, in recent years. Um, but yeah, that market has changed dramatically. And it, both from the, the breeding stock aspect and even just the, the value of the cow is in general, it, it's uh you know, the sex semen has probably made as big of an impact on that as genomics. Um, the genomics obviously helps identify the the really high value animals, but the the sex semen has given everybody the ability to create as many heifers as they need, and so that replacement heifer market is just not what it used to be. And in, often in, there's times we can buy replacement heifers for less than what it would cost us to raise our own. So we really need to be selective about which animals um, we're going to keep heifers out of and raise to be replacements in the herd, or if we're better off drawing the line in the sand of that, that cow family and buying in a replacement um, heifer from somewhere else that maybe has better genetic value. As your own herd production increases, uh, and certainly as you think about expansion, Today, the issue is, do you have a market for your milk? Just tell us a little bit about where you sell your milk and what your what your options and opportunities might be in terms of marketing milk. Our milk goes to Saputo Cheese. Uh, they have a, it, it typically goes to their plant at Wapan, which was the old Alto Dairy Co-op plant. Um, Saputo has been great to work with. They, they make cheese. They understand the value of components, so they 
they pay more for it. Um, they've got a protein premium in, in addition to the the typical payment on fat and protein. So that, that helps, helps a lot. There are some other uh, milk markets in the area. I think everything is pretty tight right now, but we are fortunate in that Wisconsin's a cheese producing state. So there's, um, I think there's always going to be a market for high quality Jersey milk. Speaking of quality, what, what, what's your, what are your cell counts running and, and, uh, What's your focus in terms of producing quality milk? Our cell count right now is right about at 200,000. It's not where I want it to be. Um, looking at changing, actually, one thing we think would help us out both on the labor side and on the, um, the cell count side is putting in alley scrapers just so we can keep the barn cleaner. Um, so that's something we're looking into um, for this coming spring. And we've we've done a little looking into teat scrubbers too to see if we can improve our milking prep and um, just get a, a cleaner teat before attaching units. Well, Brian Barless, thanks very much for sharing your Jersey story with us. I'm happily, I've known your family for a long time, and I think uh, you folks have made a great contribution, not only to the Jersey breed, but to the U.S. dairy industry, uh, you and your family. Thanks for, thanks for being with us on Dairy Voice. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Brian Barless of Barless Jerseys at Janesville, Wisconsin on Dairy Voice. This is Joel Hastings, your host, and you can find us on all the usual podcast sites as well as at dairybusiness.com.